Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network where we don't do the thinking for you. And I know you've all missed my beautiful radio voice. I am back after a mega move across the coast. I am now on the same coast as Xander, only a few hundred miles away now, rather than thousands. So we can record at better times. We can go see each other more often. I'm excited to be out in California, even though the taxes are horrendous. Welcome to the left coast. Yeah, I thought it was bad in Massachusetts, but uh, <laughs> you just can't say like Taxifornia or something. So I, I think it's just California got, got a pass on it, but whew, stuff's expensive, but it's all right. We are keeping our heads down. Neither of us has coronavirus right now. Oh, so, gosh, yeah. Hey, man, the, the, world is, the world is a little chaotic right now. We will stay on the air and in your ears. We're going to keep this up until we, you know, until the, the global pandemic kills us. So, oh, God. And as well, folks know from following some of our earlier episodes, we're, we really try to avoid chasing the news. And we did talk about doing something on the coronavirus. But right now, we're recording. It's March 11th. There's so much uncertainty in the situation still that we decided it's just best not to i mean we have tried to chase the headlines before and it backfired on us we ended up doing a show on the uh, india pakistan airstrikes last year and by the time it published there's new information out that like right it's just not our thing so we're going to do something on we're going to do a show on something completely different but hope you're staying safe out there well, something that's still a global threat to many, many people's lives. For sure. So it's at least it's at least timely as regards that. It's climate change. So we decided to keep it grim for you. <laughs> uh, we actually had a number of patrons ask us to do some episodes on climate change. So we'd be getting a little more aggressive about, you know, hey guys, what do you want over in patron land over there? So thank you ever all to all of our patrons and especially those who have asked us about what they're interested in. We've got a few more great ones coming up that patrons have requested, but today what we're going to be going over are the potential geopolitical changes from climate change. Now, before we get into the meat of this episode, Eric, let's say someone listening to this particular episode thought to themselves, hey, you know, those guys, Eric and Xander, they make pretty good content. How can I become a patron? How could they become a patron, Eric? Oh, great question. Well, one way is to send a check for a million dollars to reconsider San Mateo, California. <laughs> but the other way to do it that's probably easier is to go to patreon.com slash reconsider. We've got our standard Dan Carlin style bucket show request for everyone who really loves it. Uh, but then there are some cool goodies for you if you, uh, you know, if you jump up that ladder to some higher levels of patronage, including getting your own episode. And at this time, at, at this point, we've done more patron request episodes than I can even count. I think it's more than both hands. So we do do them. Hop on aboard. Check us out on all the social medias at Reconsider Pod on Twitter, Facebook, all that good stuff. Now, what is climate change? So I actually decided it was really important to talk about what is climate change because, you know, it's one of those things that it seems really obvious. And then you ask someone to describe in a sentence. And what they usually do is they revert back to, oh, it's global warming, right? But there's a reason that the term changed. And so what we want to do to set up how the geopolitical consequences of climate change 
or how climate change could impact geopolitics. Just want to be clear first on what it is. So, in short, what climate change is is an increase in the total um, thermal energy in the Earth's climate system due to more of the sun's thermal energy being trapped and reflected by greenhouse gases like such as CO two, and less less of that thermal energy escaping. The higher energy in the climatic system, uh, not climactic, leads to a higher average global temperatures, obviously, but also likely leads to significant changes in weather patterns, in different patterns of precipitation, in higher ocean acid levels, shifting climate zones, etc. When you hear about you know, hurricanes and such being potentially driven by climate change, it's because higher energy in a system means more things happen, right? Lower energy would mean fewer things happen. Um, but the, the total impacts are not entirely predictable. Uh, but the, humans, the reason humans care about climate change is that rapid changes to climactic systems that you live in, that your society and economy is built on, are likely to cause societal and economic disruption stress, which is generally a negative thing. So there are all sorts of different types of disruptions that, occur, that can occur to societies in the event of rapid change. Some of these can be like rising sea levels, which is something that you hear quite a lot about. You'll hear about people talking about the ice caps melting, the loss of livable and perhaps arable land near coasts, especially in low-lying regions, where often a lot of people live, because if there's a very plentiful territory or plentiful territory, and the land's particularly arable there, then historically people probably have congregated there. So there's large populations in those areas. We can see changes in where water is and is not plentiful because changes in global temperature can change the uh, water climate patterns and patterns of rainfall, patterns of things like monsoons in India that for thousands of years, people have developed farming practices around. We can see the increases in the numbers of bacteria and insects who, in earlier eras, we can see in certain cases have thrived with higher levels of CO2 in the atmosphere, or maybe higher heat. And then, of course, just extreme weather, droughts, floods in different parts of the world, and I'll just add also ocean acidification, which is one that doesn't get talked about too, right. too often, but is actually probably the most dire that I've read about. And ocean acidification is just the idea that with, with more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, if you mix carbon dioxide and water and pressurize it, you get carbonic acid, or at least a small percent of the water becomes carbonic acid. And the increase, the acidity, can gradually start dissolving the shells of different types of mollusks and lower level on the food chain sort of animals. And then that can have ripple effects all the way up. And that could be really potentially catastrophic in, you know, some hypo- in some projected cases for sources of human food supplies. Just one example. Yeah, sometimes you hear about this kind of point of no return or tipping point where basically everything, you know, it becomes a parade of horrors. But even if that doesn't happen, there are a lot of, significant changes to the global system and to local systems um, that are unpredictable and are, you know, going to, you know, going to force humans to have to change in dramatic ways. And Xander's point about, you know, look, you have, for example, farming practices in India that are built around the monsoon cycle, right? And for thousands of years, this society has developed increasingly sophisticated ways to uh, and 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 has molded around this reality. And if that reality were to sh- shift significantly, then it would be highly disruptive, right? People would have to suddenly figure out how to do something completely different and possibly somewhere, somewhere different. Here's a quick example we got from the New York Times that's, of course, linked in the notes. So, quote, gradually rising temperatures, more extreme weather events, and increasingly unpredictable patterns, like rain not falling when it should or pouring when it shouldn't have disrupted growing cycles and promoted restless, relentless spread of pests in Central America. So as you might imagine, if you were to look through highly detailed maps of what gets grown in different microregions, right? Think another example. So that, that example is about coffee and other stuff in Central America. But think wine in Italy, where very specific parts of Italy with very sp- specific rainfall patterns and amounts 
and very specific soil, soil and very specific like heat, right? Highs and lows during the spring. All that stuff is critical to being able to grow wine in that part of Italy or coffee in those parts of Central America. And if that change, you know, and, and given how diverse and specific these microclimates are for, for example, growing food, which is a like good basis of where human society comes from, all of that, you know, getting shaken around like a snow globe is going to be highly disruptive. And that's why we care, right? It is because all of these changes uh, to things that have been fairly constant in human society for thousands of years are very difficult to adapt to. Most people do not have the resources, the ability to just say, okay, well, I'm just going to go do something else, right? Like all of my arable land is gone and 28% of our economy is farmers and they're just going to do something else. Like, no, that doesn't happen. Or, you know, see, you see waters rose and took out the houses of 10 million people in Bangladesh or uh, Southern, you know, Southern Asia. And they can't just go, okay, well, I'll just fly to my other house. Right. There isn't another house. So this is this is why this stuff leads to disruption. And that disruption is going to lead to geopolitical changes in a number of ways. Right. So in summary, climate change is a broader category than just global warming. More things can occur than just things getting hotter, although that's one basic element of it. But what we really want to focus on on this particular episode is some of the consequences of different aspects of climate change. and perhaps. The biggest geopolitical consequence would be mass migrations, and often when when you see large when you see mass migrations, you often get conflict and mass violence that accompanies it. So clearly, this is uh, relevant of, and of interest to us. There are some regions that are at higher risk of experiencing mass migration events, particularly those, for example, that are low lying, like some of the Southern Pacific island nations, but those aren't the most populous of low-lying countries. For those, you would go to South Asia and look at areas of coastal India or Bangladesh, for example. Eastern China, there's a lot of low-lying lands as well. And all of those places are heavily, heavily populated parts of the world, clearly, right? India makes up 1.3 3 billion out of, I actually don't know what the current global estimate, Eric, is. Is it like 8 billion now, something like that? Something like that. Yeah. So China's really, you know, several, uh, 1.3 billion too. So these could potentially be migration events of substantial consequence. On a, just a side note, in response to rising sea levels and the desire not to lose land that is highly populated in Europe, such as the Low Countries, Northern France, Denmark, Southern Norway, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The Dutch have proposed a dam system called the Northern European Enclosure Dam, or NEED, N-E-E-D, which would span between France and England, which is about 100 miles, and then Scotland and Norway through the uh, Skellig Isles or something, uh, I think, uh, which would be about 300 miles. So insanely expensive you know who even knows how much it would cost uh probably a dutch engineer uh (laughs) but not me and but but you know it's this we're gonna we're gonna kind of roll back to this at the end but this is actually a great example of you know the the places in you know some of many of the places in the world that have the most you know have the most resources and are the most developed already are have the resiliency to be able to mitigate some of these changes, such as building 400 miles of dam through the middle of the ocean, right? Which is insane when you think about it, but you go, you know, it's not out of their own possibility. Whereas if you think you're you're India, Bangladesh, South Asia, Southeast Asia, one, the geography doesn't exist for you to be able to do that, right? There's There's no like convenient set of islands kind of around you such that you can just, you can just like close off. You know, the nice part about, about Northern, the Northern Europe and the North Sea is that there's a massive amount of coastline that curls all in on itself and only has small gaps out to the ocean. Basically, the opposite is true for South Asia, and they don't have the resources to do it anyway. So this is a, you know, this is a place where rising sea levels are basically something they can't do anything about, right? They're just hosed. And so should sea levels continue to rise significantly, hundreds of millions of people will be displaced and they will have to go somewhere. Mass migrations are also possible from drought risk, 
right? So there's a lot of places where there's already a fairly low amount of water. And if, if precipitation uh, changes, uh, river routes change, uh, et cetera, then some places that have some access to water may lose that access to water. And that loss of access to water means that millions uh, or tens of millions of people will suddenly sit there and go, well, we literally can't drink. And these cities, like literally cities that we've built, we just have to walk away from and go somewhere. Yeah, and while we're talking about India, a great example of that is if the monsoons are to be disrupted in any way, the the majority of India's water source comes from the Himalayas. It's it's runoff. And I'm pretty sure not all, but a substantial portion of the ice that melts in the Himalayas is dumped on what the monsoon ultimately becomes when it moves up the eastern coast of India into colder water. So it's, I, I think at that point, it's, it's no longer a monsoon. It changes uh, category or something like that. But there's still a lot of rain, and that runs off. And there are already cases in India of millions and millions of people running out of water. In the city of Chennai, I think it was last year, but it might have been the year before, yes. 10 million people were left without water. That's, I, that's almost all of L.A. County right there, you know? Yes. So the third, so, you know, these things are, of course, happening now. And, and this is not a, this is, of course, not a, uh, this, this is one of the few discussions about climate change, which is not us like shake, you know, not us sitting here shaking sticks saying do something. But, but what it does mean is that the, some of these, you know, from a geopolitical perspective, that uh, the chances of these migra- mass migrations happening are, are very high and they're coming quickly. So, so the, which we already just, something we already discussed before, the third source of mass migration risk, right? So we already talked about essentially losing land to rising sea levels, losing access to water, and then of course, losing access to food, right? So there's already, for example, from Central America, a very steady stream of people trying to flee economic, uh, you know, economic, essentially misery, right? To places such as Mexico and the United States, where they have much more opportunity. And as arable land changes or disappears or moves somewhere else entirely, um, a lot of these very agricultural states will have mass migrations of people leave, not just the farmers, right? But also the people who ate what the farmers grew will have to leave as well. So it could be a, a truly epic portion of the human population could have to literally start walking. Now, how can we try to get a sense of what some of those consequences would be? Well. One way would be to look at recent examples of it occurring on a somewhat smaller scale. And if you look at the Syrian civil war, a lot of researchers, and frankly, I would count myself among them just for full transparency here, think that the Syrian civil war was caused in part by a drought that resulted in a large-scale internal migration within Syria from farmlands and rural areas to cities. Uh, There are people who disagree with this or discount the the drought as a factor of the Syrian civil war. Uh, from what I've reviewed, I find it convincing that the drought was one of the major contributors, but not the only one. Now, Syria is a country of 18 million people. These, If you buy the argument that internal migration contributed to the civil war, which I think you can, then you look at what has come after that, and we've had millions of Syrians clearly uh, displaced within Syria itself, but also moving to Turkey and Lebanon and Western Europe. And in Western Europe, we've seen politics over the last several years responding fairly violently to the influx of violently, yes. not, not physically violently, but the, the politics becoming aggressive towards immigrants that are coming in from the Middle East. And that is, you know, on a much, much lower scale than potentially what you could see in parts of South Asia, right? I think you had 500,000 plus immigrants in Germany, which is one of the, the, the Western European countries that took the largest number of immigrants. You had much more in Turkey. You had close to 4 million, and we're beginning to see some of the repercussions there. But Syria, country of 18 million people. Now, what were to happen if a similar drought that drove people from the rural areas to cities occurred in a more populous country like Iran, well, the consequences would be 
more far-reaching because there are more people in Iran, and Iran has a more substantial footprint throughout the Middle East. And there are quite a bit of, and I mentioned Iran specifically because there are quite a bit of similarities between what happened in Syria in the years leading up to the start of the civil war in 2011 and things that are going on right now. I wrote uh, a fairly detailed research paper on this comparison between Iran and Syria when I was still working in geopolitical, uh, geopolitical futures. So those, that, a link to that will definitely be in the show notes. And if you haven't checked out the show notes yet, reconsidermedia.com slash podcast. They're great. Lots more detail to follow up on the topics we cover here. But essentially what you see is a combination of groundwater depletion. And groundwater is just well, basically what it sounds like water under the ground that's extracted usually for agricultural wow. purposes. Yeah, I know. Well, I didn't know what groundwater was when I started researching okay. this, right? Like there oh, are sorry. underwater aquifers and the way and the way that water in the ground flows is not necessarily intuitive, right? It's it, through porous rocks, it, it develops in these deep aquifers and there's all of these different flows. And anyways, I'm not. I'm not a, an environmental scientist, so I can't get into the details of it. But point being, those underground aquifers are often tapped for agricultural purposes. And the problem is when the refill rate of the groundwater aquifers is lower than the depletion rate. And that was the case in Syria by a substantial margin. I forget the exact number, but it, it was nowhere close. So when you added this drought that occurred in, I think it was 2008 and 2009, people started running out of their livelihood. They couldn't farm for themselves. They couldn't farm for cash crops to sell. And they had to move to the cities. And so you get high concentration of really discontented former farmers and agricultural workers having to find jobs uh, doing something else. And you get a lot of people that are really discontented with the regime. And that is essentially what's going on in Iran right now. Yeah. And... When these migrations happen, it depends on at what scale. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to places relatively nearby, if possible, that have secure access to food, water, and land that is not underwater. For example, Bangladesh. The people of Bangladesh, many people of Bangladesh, may have to pick up and move. Um, they may have to move outside of Bangladesh. Where is the obvious place for them to walk into? Well, there's one place. It is India. 
these mass migrations of people. And if we look back over history, uh, you know, over long history, mass migrations of people tended to lead to conflict. You know, there are I, there are 10 million reasons the Roman Empire fell and everyone's got their favorite one. But mass migrations from the uh, the steppe, the steppe lands across essentially Russia contributed dramatically to it. Right. The Goths showing it. mass migrations uh, may have also, you know, uh, of the Seljuk Turks uh, were largely responsible for the downfall of the Byzantine Empire, etc., uh, etc., etc. Et so the actual story of how this unfolds is highly unpredictable. But what we do know is that it tends to lead to conflict. And we don't, you know, conflict is bad. Um, and the places that have that conflict are going to be deeply geopolitically impaired. Just for the sake of a quick clarification, when India broke up in 1947, there is this event called the partition. And there are some estimates yes. upwards of a million people being killed. The 500,000 to 3 million people that might have died that Eric mentioned ago was actually a separate discrete event that occurred in the early 1970s, which is when East and West Pakistan became Pakistan and Bangladesh. And that was considered by many to be a genocide by West Pakistan, West Pakistan of uh, Bengalis. So that's, that's a different thing. It's not something that's really well known in the West, but it was an extraordinarily, extraordinarily violent event that was so violent in part because there were just so many people living there. Wow. I just learned that. Thank you. So in addition to all this mass migration, there are going to be changes on the geopolitical board, right? Changes to the map, changes to the board the game is played on. So one of these big changes is, we can keep this one shorter, it's, it's changes to agricultural landscapes, right? A major factor in geopolitics is a nation's access to food and its ability to self-sufficiently create food. So, for example, having the United States on your side in World War II was really important because the U.S. could throw lots and lots of food at you, even before it was directly involved in the war. And then it could also pick up a bunch of people from home and send them overseas because it was still able to provide enough food. What if that ability to produce metric truckloads of food, literally, uh, was threatened by changes in temperatures, right? What if the breadbasket started moving north, say towards Canada? What would that mean for the US's options in playing the geopolitical game, right? And everyone else would know that those options are constrained. So the rules of the game would change as the board changed. So, you know, one of the, because as we mentioned before, that that the disruption itself in this arable land right, takes a long time to adjust to. So it's going to be like a net loss, right? There's going to be a net loss of food production, which is likely, but there will be some areas that are able to increase their food production, such as Canada and Russia. And thereby Russia, for example, has, has a relative gain in geopolitical power by not having to depend as it does now, on foreign food imports to be able to feed its people. The geopolitical rules of the game will change. So talk about the board changing. There are clearly issues of where land is arable, but then there are the logistics and the trade routes themselves. And we actually had a conversation about this with our good friend Fonseca from Visual Politique in if you're not subscribed to Visual Politik on YouTube, you really should. It's a great channel. They have a Spanish channel, which is the original and English channel. And now they just launched a German channel. So they are trilingual. And ah, ganz toll. Yeah, that's... <laughs> uh, they really have some great content. And uh, Fonseca is a great friend of the show. So check them out. And the uh, English channel, you might hear some strangely familiar voices some of the time. Indeed. Strangely familiar. Yes. So we had a conversation with Fonseca in an episode that we call What Happens When the Arctic Melts? And we won't get on into all the details here, but a rough summary is basically, you know, the Arctic ice melts and all of a sudden there's all this new uh, wa uh, surface area that's water that used to be ice. That so Some estimates of the amount of, of ice that will melt creating new water is something on par with the size of the Mediterranean. I don't know if that's in terms of surface area or volume, but... Um, I guess surface area would matter more for trade routes. Yes. Yeah. And in addition to that, the land 
around this new sea or the new areas of, of the Arctic Sea would become more inhabitable. So certain areas of northern, uh, northeastern U.S., Canada, Russia, Norway, Greenland, Iceland, and uh, other parts of northern Scandinavia will all become more habitable. So th- the fact that this new trade route becomes, uh, or the fact that you get these new trade routes has security implications because the new trade routes are going to have to be protected. And, you know, who knows if it's going to be one of these situations where certain countries, they ha- think that they have exclusive rights to those trade routes because the trade routes fall, you know, according to UN uh, maritime law, the CUN clause, you know, within the X hundred miles or whatever. And then Russia says, you know what, actually, this entire trade route is ours. It's not international water. But you can imagine that becoming a complication in relations as that question becomes either litigated in public courts of opinion or, frankly, just played out on the geopolitical chessboard. And the U.S. Navy is aware of this. It has been actively developing contingency plans and different types of strategies to deal with different climate change scenarios in the Arctic when that ice melts, however quickly it does, since that open water in the north is going to create a new maritime zone of competition with Russia and other things. But that's really the main geopolitical linchpin there. So additionally, there's going to be dynamics between who's importing and who's exporting different types of resources. For example, look at oil, just for example, because it's one that we all know and love, right? So we already talked about how vulnerable India is to different aspects of climate change. But in addition to this, India and China both, for example, import a lot of oil from Middle East. And when you're talking about oil coming from the Middle East, you're talking about uh, unstable trade routes in in certain places. For example, the route that goes through the Persian Gulf, through the Strait Strait of Hormuz, is often contested between Saudi Arabia and Iran and the UAE and Oman. And well, Oman's kind of usually neutral, but point is, it's, it's not necessarily the most secure trade route. And the pressure that you're going to face from uh, the geopolitical issues around those flashpoints like the Strait of Hormuz, like the Bab el-Mandab and the Red Sea, which is where a lot of commerce from Europe needs to go to get to India and China, is probably going to pressure countries like India that are dependent on certain types of national uh, security-related resources like energy to start developing energy alternatives more rapidly than elsewhere where mm. those those resources are more readily available. So it's not necessarily that I, I'm not clear what the impact of climate change would be on those trade routes themselves, unless if, like, say, you're looking at how my, mass migration around the Strait of Hormuz might impact that particular strait. Uh, same with the Bab al-Mandab. But it, it's an added pressure on top of all the pressures they're going to encounter from climate change and migration and all that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And this is, this is actually a great example of, you know, I, I hate talking about, you know, multiple, multiple interacting forces because it always feels like an academic's way of, of not being willing to actually take a stand on something be like, Oh yeah, there's lots of, you know, it's, it's, Whenever I read an article that says there's one cause, the reason the Roman Empire failed, I'm frustrated. But also it's the case that whenever I read an article that says, like, there are many reasons the Roman Empire failed that all intermingled with each other in complex ways that we can't really pick apart, I'm equally frustrated. But the why did I say this? The point is that (laughs) we do have to embrace some of the complexity of this intermingling at some point. And the real key, right, the real key in this is that it's so hard to predict some of the things that will happen. And what the aftershocks will be, I mean, this is not, we're not talking about a butterfly flaps its wings here, you know, in, in, you know, for those who don't know, a butterfly flaps its wings in China and causes a hurricane in the Western United States. It's, uh, it's chaos, right? I'm not talking just chaos theory here. What we're talking about is, you know, we're talking about dropping a, a very big hammer on this system. And so it's not that these tiny changes, that not that tiny changes could have these ripple effects that magically turn into something huge. It's that it's a big change coming to the system very quickly. And, you know, if you throw a, if you throw a brick through a window, it's hard to predict exactly how big the hole will be and what the crack patterns look like and stuff like that. You just know you're going to have a hole 
all we can say is that there will be a hole, but the way that the cracks form really matters in as the board rebuilds, right? So here's just a couple like tiny examples of this. So uh, of of how random these cracks can seem to be until you trace back. Cracks in the ice. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah there we go. Cracks in the ice. That's a better analogy than the than a window. But here's one, right? So if you read a and you know, and let's say you're like a kind of a climate change skeptic and you're like, I don't really like the climate change alarmism is too much. And it said, you know, you read an article that said climate change is causing India and Pakistan to fight over Kashmir more. And you might go like, ah, come on, right? Like not literally everything is caused by climate change, right? What's next? Is coronavirus current change? Is Donald Trump caused by climate change? I mean, come on, people, right? But let's look in the story. And that would be a bad headline anyway, I'll admit. But we looked at, we looked a little deeper into the story. And it turns out that, you know, higher average temperatures in the Himalayas are causing more Himalayan snow to melt into Kashmir. And we already mentioned that changes in monsoon patterns are causing water insecurity in parts of India that we're used to getting it from monsoons. So one, one thing, climate change, this big brick that we're throwing through the ice, causes two things to happen. One, water from one source that goes directly to India starts to dry up. Two, water from another source that it previously didn't provide to the ground, the Himalayas, or at least in nearly so much quantity, is now showing up in Kashmir, which is disputed territory between India and Pakistan. So India is sitting there and being like, well, holy smokes, I've lost all this water. I have tens of millions of people that might go thirsty. And, you know, if you think people riot when they're hungry, wait till they're thirsty right? They're going to go berserk. So I need to get access to that water. But unfortunately, that water is in the part of Kashmir that Pakistan really cares about. And so how do I get access to that water without, you know, literally, you know, without like literally going to war over it? And so, and so you have this, again, not a butterfly flapping its wings. It's a crack in the window or in the ice from the brick being thrown. But it's a complex story that would have been hard to predict on its own. Um, Another one is that, you know, this is related to a lot of the stuff above. Russia may actually love climate change mm-hmm. um, for a couple of reasons. One, we already mentioned the breadbasket, but not only and not only will they gain access to new shipping routes in the north. Uh, and this one is a little more predictable. So uh, but it's one of the things that you have to put some thought into first. So Russia is going to get access to shipping routes in the north. It's going to have warm European water ports that are not blocked by Turkey, which is so important, right? We've talked about this as, as like core reasons that Russia is sending troops to die in Ukraine and Syria to preserve some sort of access uh, to, you know, to the West for its Navy. Well, what if just the ice melted away and all of a sudden it can just set sail from the North and get wherever it wants? Okay, game changer, right? And so not only that, but also a lot of oil and gas within, you know, both within its current exclusive economic zone and also outside of it, um, it's going to get access to a lot of that oil and gas. And unless the world has given up on oil and gas, suddenly Russia has a new lifeline for being able to get its hands on even more critical natural resources. And so Russia might be looking at this being like, you know, this is going to work out pretty well for us. And by the way, Moscow does get bloody cold in the winter, doesn't it? So, you know, maybe not so bad. It's these kinds of stories that are going to happen in a legion of ways that we can't predict, but because every little part of the board is different, what you can grow where and what has water and what is underwater and what is different temperatures um, and where ice melts right on the ocean. All this stuff is, is such a massive set of changes that uh, we don't know where the board will end up in some you know, kind of post-climate change steady state, but it's going to be wild. And in Russia, over the last couple of years, they have been trying to get off of their oil dependence. And they've been not entirely successful, but fairly successful in the sense they've decreased the percentage of their economy that is attributable to oil uh, and gas-related business. So it, it may be that in 10 years, if you know, Russia gets all this new natural gas reserves, all these new natural gas reserves from the Arctic, that's great. And it's like icing on the cake, but they're actually not as desperate as they were maybe 10 years ago. But maybe that wouldn't right. be the case. 
in all of the countries that today are still exporting a lot of oil and natural gas. What about countries in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, that really is a petro economy? I mean, it's not diversified like Russia. It is entirely, they're trying. Boy, are they trying with their Vision 2030. But I mean, as of today, March 11th, there's already an oil price war going on between Saudi Arabia and Russia. And that, plus the coronavirus fears that it's, um, demand for oil is going to decrease. We've now seen a barrel of Brent crude around 30 a barrel, which, you know, at turn of the year would have been almost unthinkable. But yeah. what about Saudi Arabia? What about Venezuela? You know, what happens if a lot of other countries around the world that are dependent upon these imports really want to develop alternate energy sources, really want to develop renewable energy sources so that they don't have to depend as much on maybe things that are going to be taxed more and more as time goes on. Maybe uh, governments are going to increase regulations on how non-renewable uh, and fossil fuels um, uh, sources are used. Well, perhaps you see a decrease in demand in oil and gas and places like Venezuela and Saudi Arabia really begin to struggle because the global demand for oil falls. Now, like Eric mentioned a minute ago, there are so many different factors at play here. We're kind of just gaming out a couple of different scenarios. It's really hard to know exactly how it would work. But you have to imagine that the people running countries that are really dependent upon one product, one commodity that can can experience a radical change in demand due to changes in climate are going to be thinking about this stuff. Yeah, one of my favorite examples is China. So China happens to be racing way ahead in renewable energy technology production. The United States is a, is a distant second, but, but second well above Europe in terms of uh, patent development here and, and uh, growth in manufacturing. But China's racing ahead and, and suddenly people could be buying Chinese solar cells, batteries, and wind turbines the way that they bought Japanese cars and cassette tapes, which I know you younger listeners will have to go <laughs> Google. Uh, what that is, and and televisions back in the eighties, right? And and look what that did for Japan, right? And Japan's not a huge geopolitical player because it chooses not to be, but you know, but for quite some time was the second largest economy in the world. And so, what could what could a uh, green energy boom mean? China could mean it could mean a lot. And the the other thing that China has in its back pocket, if this boom happens, is they have the world's largest supply of rare earth metals. And as the name implies, they are not common in the earth. And having a dominant supply of them when everyone else wants them to build batteries gives you a big hand to play in trade negotiation, right? Which impacts geopolitics. It's also the case that some places that are otherwise previously ignored could turn into big energy uh, suppliers. So remember, we think of places with a lot of oil and gas as big energy suppliers and therefore geopolitically powerful. And if electricity transmission gets better, mm. then suddenly places with a lot of sun and wind start looking like the kinds of places that have a lot of gas and oil, right? So as, you, you know, as we know, the Sahara has a lot of sun. So for countries that are you know, largely dependent on oil right now, can they turn that ship? and start to become sun dependent. And guess what? That one's not going away anytime soon. And they could potentially transfer that energy to Europe and become a net sun exporter. The UK, Norway, of course, have lots of, lots of wind. Very windy there. If you've ever stood in Scotland, you, you will know that there's a lot of harnessable energy right there. But also Ethiopia is very windy. Somalia is very windy, right? So what does that mean about, you know, they could trade... Uh, energy to parts of the Middle East that are not quite as sunny. They could trade energy into Eastern and Central Africa. Um, and it turns out Greenland, whose ice is going to melt and first experience massive flooding, but then at some point might become actually green. That would be a, that would be a double irony there. Um, could become a wind powerhouse for North America, right? And so uh, these kinds of changes could, you know, that kind of change along with like the melting and the trade route to the North all of that together could put Greenland on the geopolitical map in 100 years, right? Which nobody ever imagined. So the, it is not just climate change, but the response to climate change that can also start to change the geopolitical picture because the demand for different natural resources will emerge than the ones that we're used to in the same way that the 
ability to harness coal and then oil and then gas changed the game. It may become the case, or it's likely to become the case, that our ability to harness wind and sun will change the game all over again. And then the map starts to look different. Pause. Uh, Note to editor, pause. I think geopolitics is a zero-sum game, isn't it? I am more, like, that's the whole security dilemma. I'm more powerful, makes you less, or I'm more secure, makes you less secure. So what about the long term? And again, it's hard to know a lot of these things, but the biggest long-term change when you're talking about geopolitics and impacts on human society is likely to come from massive changes to population distribution and economies, as well as supply or access to different types of food resources. Uh, And that will also impact migration. A lot of people are going to move and potentially very long distances. And a lot of these people are not, as Eric mentioned, really flush with cash. And it's going to be very difficult for them to get by as they try to migrate. Certain economic structures are going to collapse while others rise. And certainly at least certain parts of the world will be rebuilt to some extent. And the question how much, well, that's a difficult one to answer. Now, geopolitics depends to a degree on where people are and aren't. I mean, you can argue that geopolitics is really the study of how geography interacts with politics or more broadly, how geography interacts with human societies and how people interact with each other. So literally all of climate, I'm going to restart it literally. So climate is a part of geography, in part because geography can impact climate and climate can impact geography. I mean, really a more broad theoretical consideration of geopolitics is going to include the study of of climate to a degree. The changes in climate is going to have massive impacts on geopolitics just because by definition, climate is part of uh, the geography aspect of geopolitics. I'm getting a little semantical right now, and if you want to come at me and disagree, by all means, I'd reconsider pod. But the future of geopolitics and international relations as a result of this long-term trend, 50 to 100 years from now, is going to be played out on a very different game board than what we see right now. And there's lots of other forces that are going to cause this shift as well. I mean, you can talk about some of the regionalization issues that are cropping up from the trade wars and possibly even the spread of COVID-19. But climate change is going to be part of that equation. So trying to understand where we are and where we're going from a geopolitical perspective is going to require understanding what exactly is happening to the climate best we can, understanding that there are uncertainties in any sort of forecast and going from there. Yeah, I think the this is a larger... This is like a larger question about geopolitics as a whole than just climate change. But as I thought more about this, you know, I used to think, okay, in a hundred years, you know, how will have climate change have impacted how Russia, China, and the United States and a somewhat unified Europe and India play the game? Right? How it is going to affect how they play the game? And the the thing I didn't think about that may may end up being true is that the names of countries on that list that we ask about how they play the game, that might change, right? Not literally like the U.S. has called someone else, but the, but who knows, right? But, but the, the countries that matter, the countries that we're bringing up and even talking about could change, you know, due to, for example, mass migrations, the, you know, uh, Francia and Germania, right, became heavily populated due to mass migrations when they're otherwise quite lightly populated um, in antiquity. And then, you know, look up one day and, and France and Germany are the powerhouses of Europe, right? And fighting all the time. And it may be the case that the impact of mass migrations and changes where water is and changes where food can be grown are going to shift where people are so much that the players in this geopolitical game will suddenly not suddenly, sorry, gradually, but, but if we fast forward 100 years, we would wake up and go, holy crap, this isn't, these, these, aren't the, these aren't the countries I thought we'd be talking about here leading these you know, world factions and coalitions and alliance groups and, and driving global conflict and cooperation and, and competition. And so 
I hate to uh, I hate to end much like the uh, frustrating Roman history academics that say, well, it's really complicated and we can't really <laughs> pick it apart. But the point is that it's bigger than it looks at first, right? It's not just how is this going to impact India. It's 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 who are we even going to be talking about in fifty or hundred years? It can be that big. So we hope with this relatively cursory overview of the geopolitics of climate change, we've maybe turned you on to a few new things that you haven't heard about before, made you interested enough to dig down in greater depth into one or another of these topics. Be sure to check out our show notes because we have lots of links that can uh, start you on that quest. Reconsider media.com slash podcast. Just find this episode on climate change and all the notes will be there. Now, as always, Eric, what do we say here? Don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric. I'm signing off. This is Xander. I'm signing off. Thanks for not doing the thinking for me. See ya. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The secret to visibly firmer, summer ready skin is here. Osea's number one best selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.